0: Thank you, Jess. Uh, Please join with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that you have caused to be written. And we've heard twice the warnings to pay attention even from these verses. And so enable us to pay attention, we pray. Amen. Well, last week, it was 40 years since the disappearance of Azaria Chamberlain at Ayers Rock. Those of you that don't know the name Ayers Rock but know it as the better name, Uluru, probably don't know anything about the Chamberlain case either. But Michael Chamberlain was an Adventist pastor and he and his wife went on a holiday with their two sons and two-month-old daughter Azaria to Ayers Rock. On the night of the 17th of August 1980, Lindy cried out that her daughter had been taken by a dingo. What followed were long-court cases claiming that not a dingo, but Lindy killed her daughter. And that case was what everybody was talking about for months at morning tea time. And here is a confession. I was certain I knew what happened. In fact, everybody was certain they knew what happened. Some actually said that it was uh, the dingo took Azaria and others, who included me, said Lindy killed her daughter. After all, I'd made my decision because the media showed footage of Lindy never crying, always being composed, and we were told that Azaria meant sacrifice in the wilderness, when actually it means God helped. And as quickly as I was sure that Lindy was guilty, I became equally sure that she was innocent when it came to her retrial. Now, the reason that I'm confessing this is that it shows how easy it is to let yourself see only the evidence that you want to see. I saw the guilt. I saw her face. And then I heard the facts and I was sure that she was innocent as well. So we've got to be careful about holding strong and convinced conclusions, often on very flimsy and wrong information. Because to be assured of your position, when the truth is actually very different, is very dangerous. And that confession that I've just made to you is easy to make because not much rides on it. Uh, it just shows how foolish I am. But I make it so that every one of us here or watching online can see the danger of misunderstanding and presuming on our relationship. And I don't want us to make that mistake. Sorry, I've got to fix this up, haven't I? All right, Robert. Thank you. Use the microphone instead. Thank you. Sorry about that, everyone. Okay. So what I want us to do is actually look at Paul's word that just read uh, read to us a moment ago, uh, because if anyone has to be has the right to be proud of their achievements before God, it's the apostle Paul. We saw last week that Paul is free but for the sake of others he became a servant. Chapter 9, verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win at those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. He's concerned not for himself, but that people would be saved. Everything Paul does is for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. So if anyone had the right to be content, to be assured that he's good with God, it certainly would have been Paul. And so it is so shocking that he writes the next paragraph that follows because he is so concerned about him being disqualified from the heavenly prize and that prize is heaven. Listen to the very next words, the words that follow how he is kept serving all the time. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, and so run that you might obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I hope you notice the intensity of Paul's concern. His language is that of exertion, of effort. The Olympics were meant to be on at this time. And for the athletes, it's not just the heartbreak of not being there, but they had worked for four years so they would peak at this absolute time. Because if you're an elite athlete, you work hard, you work ceaselessly for years. And that is the image that the Apostle Paul has here. Run that I might obtain the prize. I discipline my body, lest I myself be disqualified given what Paul says here in chapter 10 and also back in chapter 3, I think he's probably most concerned about missing out on the joys of heaven. That's a disqualification that he's speaking about. And yet, if anyone could say that he had done enough, it would have been Paul, wouldn't it? After all, he was the Corinthian apostle. He had done so much for them so much for them at deep personal cost. And so we must learn from him not to presume on past achievements, because that's what Paul's concern is. Not what I've achieved on the, in the past, I keep pushing on and disciplining myself. He works hard, he pushes on, he keeps working. Now, in the previous verses, he works hard for the sake of the Corinthians. But now he turns his attention to the state of his own soul. And here, my friends, is a deceit of the devil, and it's a deceit that the devil uses ever so often because the devil takes good things and twists and uses them against the people of God. And here he takes the good thing, which is good performance, strong service. So that the better you are at doing these, the more you need to beware. Beware that you don't trust in what you have done or how much you've achieved. And so give up striving and therefore be disqualified from the prize. Beware of the deceit of trusting in your past activities. Beware of the deceit of trusting in past successes. Beware of the deceit of trusting in past experience. Beware of the deceit of trusting in what you have done because each of those can cause you just to coast, to take your eyes off the prize and therefore to be disqualified from the prize. Last year I was speaking at a church, not our church here, where we were discussing how we might reach people that haven't yet given their lives to Christ. And I was calling on those congregation members to give themselves fully to this. And one dad, in a moment of honesty, said, I used to do this when I was at uni, when I was young. But times have changed and I am just too tired and too busy now. He needs to listen to Paul's warning. And it's not just... What you do that could disqualify you, it's also what you don't do. So Paul says, I don't run aimlessly, I don't beat the air, I am focused in what I am doing. And these words at the end of chapter 9 are so foreign to our discipline free world. This discipline free world that we live in that's just become so much of the way we think where our world says, find your own course, you're the master of your own destiny, live the authentic you. Paul will have nothing of this wishy-washy, and, he'll have nothing, and he won't let us have anything to do with this wishy-washiness as well. Focus on the prize and discipline yourself to get it, he says. And don't be deceived. Sometimes thoughts come into my head, as I'm sure they come into your head, and you need to challenge them. When you think, in your superiority. I am not like. I have done more than they have. I do not do what they do. I perform better than. I am okay. All of these thoughts and so many others like them can deceive you. And like me, with Lindy Chamberlain, I look only at part of the story, only the bits I want, and so get it wrong. Be careful if you think you are standing, if you think you are doing well, because it is so easy to take your eyes off the prize. Now I can imagine that some of you here today are saying that I am overstating the danger, or you might think that Paul is excessively worried by it. Don't be deceived. Listen to what Paul now says in chapter 10. In chapter 10, just these two paragraphs we're looking at this morning, there are two clusters of events from Israel's history and each is followed by a warning to learn from that history. A call not to waste learning from the terrible pain of what happened to that nation Israel. So in verses 1 to 6, there's a warning about feeling good, feeling safe that we're close to God. And in that feeling, not paying attention, but just coasting along. And it will disqualify you from the prize. And then in verses 7 to 11, there's a warning about how you can engage in things that can disqualify you from the prize. So let's have a look at it. Firstly... Uh, the experiences of all of the nations that have ever existed in the world, the people of Israel must have experienced the greatest closeness that you could possibly have to God. First one I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, in just a few words, we have this history lesson that covers Israel from the way, remember Eleanor's talk a moment ago, from the way they triumphantly left the slavery in Egypt with all of the gold of that wealthy nation, and as they look behind them, They saw Egypt's Pharaoh, Pharaoh who was considered a god, drowning in the waters as he pursued the nation. And that nation journeyed towards the promised land. It took them 40 years to get there, but they were never alone. In those 40 years, they crossed the same sea that consumed Pharaoh in its waters, but they crossed on dry land because God was with them. They were led by the very presence of God in a cloud by day and a fiery pillar by night. God was their general, leading them every step that they took. They were united to Moses figuratively in baptism. Moses, that humble man of God who God met with, who saw God, they were united with him. And they were fed in the wilderness by the very bread that came down from heaven, by the kind provision of God. And when they complained that there was no water, God gave them water by having it spring from a rock. And not just water. Water that was the very presence of Christ. These 40 years that they've experienced, they've experienced the very great closeness of God, the way God had cared for them so often. You couldn't be closer to you, couldn't be more provided for, you couldn't be more protected by God than those that had gone through these experiences. And so you would think that they would be saying to each other, what a fantastic future awaits us. As we go into the promised land. You would assume that seeing day after day, week after week, that kind hand of God. They would strengthen in their resolve not to serve other gods but to serve the living and true God. And you would infer that having been cared for so much by a loving God. That this nation would want nothing else. And so then the sad and unexpected words of verse 5. Nevertheless, most of them, with most of them, God wasn't pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And you think, what has happened here? How can this be explained? We are not told in detail what happened, but probably more importantly than being told what happened, Paul tells us why he happens, why it happens. And why it happens is there in verse six. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Be very careful it's so easy to point the finger at those foolish Israelites and to not learn from ourselves. It's a bit like saying, Lindy's guilty and not see my own prejudices and assumptions. Because what happened to Israel in that wilderness is truly horrifying. We need to suck in the horror of it. Almost everyone in an entire generation die in the wilderness this is worse than you can imagine with COVID but these things happen to them we are told in in kindness to us so that we would learn and we must learn not to presume on God and so there are two things as you get to the end of verse 5 that you can draw from Israel's sad history, firstly Beware of thinking that receiving the blessings of God in the past is any guarantee that you'll make it to heaven. It's important I say that because it's so natural and it's so often right that human beings accept things to continue, expect things to continue as they always have. Covid, I know, has challenged that. But so often, because things have gone well for us in the past, because it hasn't been too painful, because we have had the blessings of God given to us, we think, I will always have them, which can lead us to complacency. Learn from that, from Israel's difficult circumstance. But secondly, notice that the experiences that they went through, this nation went through, were communal. The nation passed through the sea, the nation had the presence of God, the nation was fed and watered by God, the nation was baptised into Moses, the nation rejected God. We all, we all, they all, keeps running through these four verses, the community led each other to do wrong. It seems that so few ever stood up to warn the nation and to show the right way forward. Instead, everybody felt happy because everyone was heading in the same way. In the same way was disqualification from entering the promised land. And even though it is individuals who are disqualified, there is a communal judgment and it's every individual's responsibility to the community to help it to act properly. So there's the first lesson. We'll go a bit faster now. If the first lesson was not to presume and therefore miss out on receiving the prize, the second lesson pushes it a bit further because complacency about God, taking your eyes off the prize, can so easily lead to wrong attitudes to God Attitudes that will cause you to look elsewhere for gratification that will disqualify you from your prize. I'm sure we've all experienced it, that those people we are closest to, those people that we love the most, we presume on the most, don't we? We take them for granted. The ones who we love the most, who have given us the most, we treat poorly. Whereas we treat well those that we don't know very well. And that's what happened. That's the danger here. And that's what Israel did. God was with them, God kept blessing them all the time. And instead of turning to God in gratitude, they turned away from God to serve other gods. And so, verses 7 to 10 is a whole list of Old Testament events that are being recalled and I won't go into much detail apart from sharing with you some of the horror of it as Paul heaps one failure after another on top of them so that we get the feel of what happened and that it happened so often and it happened when it should never have happened when you least expect it to so here's the summary that you can see in the four verses Each of these is an example of not just complacency in the presence of God, but actively and actually turning away from God. So verse 7, idolatry. Listen in horror to what went on there. The people are there at the base of Mount Sinai where God is unmistakably and powerfully present. He's up the mountain. The mountain is full of deep gloom. The whole mountain is shaking. The people are hearing the voice of God and Moses has gone up the mountain. The people push Moses up there to say, you go, we're too scared to be anywhere near God. And so Moses goes up and he's getting the Ten Commandments where God is giving them the rules so that he and they can be close to each other. Here is the very presence of God. Here the people are feeling and seeing God. And what are they doing while that's happening? They're at the bottom of the mountain, gathering all the gold that they've taken out of God's good hand from Egypt and making a cow out of it so they can worship that cow. They have turned their back on the visibly present, true and living God, and they make a lifeless, speechless, powerless God. And they make these idols in the presence of the true and living God. And the, that idolatry doesn't lead them to better conduct, but it leads them to immorality. So as they worship the gold, they parted uncontrollably. And then in verse 8, sexual immorality. This case of sexual immorality occurred just after an incident where Balaam was paid to curse the people of Israel. But God wonderfully intervened in Balaam so that Balaam was forced not to curse but to bless Israel. There is great protection from God for the people of Israel here. And how did Israel respond to this kindness of God? They took women from Moab. And in their partnering with these women, they took on their foreign gods. And they even proudly paraded to each other what they were doing. And in verses 8 and 9, we see grumbling. Grumbling after God had fed and watered and protected them in the wilderness. And the consequence of all this stupidity is that they are brought under the judgment of God. So learn from them. Verse 11. These things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Learn that you can have the blessings of God all around you. We have the blessings of God in our midst, in our nation, in our church, but we can lead each other astray. Do you see again the community nature of sin? The people are led astray even though they have the kind actions of God everywhere. Beware of seeking what everyone around you seeks and turning away from God. And Paul will say that what has happened to Israel you Corinthians need to listen to because you Corinthians have heard You, Corinthians, have learnt. You, Corinthians, have experienced the blessings of sins forgiven. Here, an immoral group of people in the city of Corinth turn to God and everything is forgiven them. And yet, these Corinthians did not treat each other properly. Later on next week, we'll hear of the way that their fellowship meals were abused. And us... Here at Wild Street, watching online, we can hear from our preachers each week of God giving us not just better than we deserve, but more than we could possibly imagine. And then what we do is not care about people who don't know Jesus and give in to our human desires. Before we move on to my conclusion... I just need to pause to make a very, very significant point. The nation of Israel and the people of Corinth shared a common fault. Their arrogance. They thought that they were safe and so could do what they liked without considering what effect that would have. They did what they felt like without considering or being concerned for other people. If you do that, listen well, because you need to hear from this story. But there are others of us here who have tender consciences, who strive to conform your lives to honour God. And of course, as you strive to do that, you can never meet God's standards because that will only ever finally occur in heaven. Not only do you not meet God's standards, you don't even live to what you want, live up to what you want for yourself. And as I read these verses, you are feeling the full blast of the judgment of God. I want to relieve you of that. The idolatry that is here spoken of is not that momentary or even occasional lapse into seeking things other than the true and living God. The idolatry that's spoken of here is a settled position of turning from God to seek things that aren't God. And I have to admit, I think we all do that. I certainly do from time to time. And so what do you do when you do that, when you realise it? You turn back to God, say sorry, and know that your sins are forgiven. So... As devastating as the outcome for so many people in Israel was, the stakes for us are even greater than it was for them. For unlike Israel, it's upon us and the Corinthians that the end of the ages has come. Listen again to verse 11. These things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages has come on us because we lived after the most significant event that has ever occurred in human history. That, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing more that is needed before the heavens are ripped open and the Lord Jesus in his glory will descend to judge the living and the dead. Some will be brought to everlasting judgment and others to everlasting life. You see, the most important thing in the world is not whether we're going to get an increase in coronavirus again, but the eternal destiny of your souls. And that is just around the corner for every one of us for the end of the ages has come. And so pay attention. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If so many in Israel failed, despite the presence of God, what hope do we have? It seems that taking heed, like verse 12 says, is good advice. Take heed lest you fall, but is it enough? And the answer is no. And so it is so wonderful that our passage finishes with verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also will provide a way of escape so that you might be able to endure it. Friends, you are not alone in the struggle. Look around you here in church now without taking your masks off. Those of you that are online, look at who is in the chat there. Every one of us is in the same situation. All of us are tempted to not pay heed. Each one of us is tempted to give up. Now, the temptations will be different at different stages of life and they'll be different for different people. One person finds something a temptation now. Another person finds a temptation, a different temptation now but we all feel the temptation to give up. But you can never use that as an excuse because the verse ends with the great truth that there is always a way of escape, always the ability to endure the temptation situation. It might be painful, but it's never acceptable to to say, I had no other alternative than to sin or to say to one another, I fully understand why you chose that sinful path. And just as there is a commonality in the way that we all experience temptation, so we have each other to help us, don't we? As a community, we actually need to be working to help each other. And so what happens if we all face temptation? What is our only hope? Our only hope is that for every Christian is God is faithful there in verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will always provide a way of escape. The promise is not of ease but endurance. God will see you safely through. God cares for the individual. God cares for every individual in every circumstances of life so that none of us will face a situation that will demand that we do wrong. I've got to say, that is a great comfort, isn't it? Each one of you is cradled in the everlasting arms of God and he will never give you something that you can't be godly in. As I've been thinking about this passage over the last couple of days I'll tell you one of the ways I get it wrong There are two different things going on here One is sin, which is real which is all around us that we must meet with self-discipline and awareness because it keeps dragging us down The other is the grace of God God who cares for you God who supports you and supplies for you so that there will always be a godly way out so that you won't be disqualified and what I think I do in my head is I try to balance the two here is sin here is the grace of God that meets sin and the grace of God of course is always greater than the sin and so my temptation is just to look at the little bit extra that we have under the hand of God. I think 1 Corinthians 10 will not allow me to do that. We must see how very real and how dangerous sin is. How it's lurking in me and the people round about us. And also to see how wonderful it is that despite all of this, God will provide for every individual in their unique circumstance the way to be godly. I confessed my error in seeing the Chamberlain case in that case, only what I wanted to see. And I want to say to you, that's just a minor failing. It just shows that we must watch and learn and not be deceived. But this week, in our chapel at Moore College, we listened to, we weren't allowed to sing because of COVID days, we listened to the great William Cooper hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood we all know it, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Don't you love those words? God has supplied everything we need. God is faithful and will provide a way of escape. But then the second verse was sung to us that I listened along to. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away, wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And I thought when that was sung, I am not as vile as he. Let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Always got to be watching The deceit and the arrogance of temptation will be with us all, all of our lives. Beware lest you become like Israel. And praise God, because it is us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. Nothing in our world today prevents God taking his people home because all that is necessary has happened and God will never let you be tempted beyond your ability to endure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, remind us through this painful history of Israel not to presume on you. Help us to remember through this painful history of Israel the way that it is so easy to take you for granted and to run after other things that will destroy us and disqualify us from the prize. And thank you that we are not merely left to our own devices, but that you are at work to enable us to endure, to always have a godly way out. Thank you for that, for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. Amen.